Um, good morning, everybody, and uh, what an exciting start we've got to the, uh, to the morning. Um, thank you very much. Um, as you can see, um, I've got a, a great panel joining me here. Um, uh, we have uh, um, John McDonald from, from ABS, um, and uh, um, Ivan Lindemann from, uh, from uh, Navigator Gas, Gordon Herg from Herg, obviously, and uh, um, Anders Onerheim and uh, Oystein Kalkalev um, from Flex. So what we're going to try and do is take you on a, a little journey of what's been happening with the uh, situation with Russian gas to start off. And uh, we will try and go from the, from the start of what's happening, um, or happened, sorry, through to uh, where we are today. Um, and so looking back a little bit on, the, on what has happened, I'd like to open to all the, all the panel um, and ask them um, what the, uh, particularly just keeping it to, to one or the other, what is the most significant upside or downside for their companies in what's happened in, uh, in, with the situation in Russia and Ukraine and the, the pullback from, from Russian gas. Um, who would like to... Uh, who would like to kick us off? Any volunteers? Otherwise, I'm going to pick somebody. So, well, the, from Navigator Gas point of view, it's uh, clearly what happened in Ammonia. So, because of the uh, conflict or war in Russia and Ukraine, 20-25% uh, of Ammonia exports were effectively shut out from the market. Okay. So that had a big impact on the gas carry industry. That were shipping ammonia. So Europeans were short and they had to look elsewhere, further afield, to source their ammonia supply. And that had a big impact on tonne-wide demand because the shipping fleet didn't change, therefore they had to stay longer and that was a positive from a shipping point of view in the ammonia trade. And that has not solved itself to this day, so it's still a big issue. Okay. So I'm sad to say that uh, <clears throat> for the audience that food prices will still rise because ammonia is used as fertilizer and the world is short of it at the moment. Okay, thank you. So, John, John, please go ahead. Yeah, I guess I'll go down. <coughs> I'll go down the uh, the, uh, the line here and, uh, and pick up. Uh, <coughs> I mean, when when the crisis started, uh, of course, the first thing that we we uh, made sure our, our people. Uh, we're safe, and and uh, <clears throat> and our clients that we were working with, that uh, <clears throat> we were, excuse me, we, we were uh, uh, addressing their needs. Uh, of course, we had a, a significant supply chain kind of, you know, uh, squeeze as far as what what uh, was being manufactured in Ukraine, uh, what was um, uh, actually in Russia as well, and how we handled that with our clients, uh, and also. Uh, attending the vessels within the ports in the area, so that that was pretty significant. But what actually kept me up at night was was making sure that our people were safe and the people, the clients that we were, and the seafarers that were in these ports, uh, that they were they were uh, well kept after. So, big big uh, supply chain conflict though, as far as taking care of things and, and supporting uh, the materials that were being sent from Ukraine to either yards or or uh, the repairs that were being done. So to keep things moving was, was pretty significant from that business impact side. Okay. Thank you, John. Yeah. <clears throat> F 
for uh, our company, Hercule G, uh, which specializes in uh, FSRUs. Uh, FSRUs are uh, floating import LNG uh, terminals. So we were right uh, in the sweet spot of, of what dawned on Europe after the start of the war, uh, that all the Russian uh, pipeline volumes uh, would be at risk, and indeed most of them have disappeared subsequently. And uh, many countries around Europe, uh, most notably uh, Germany, realized that they did not have sufficient LNG import capacity, and Germany had none at the start of, uh, of the war. So there was a scramble to, to uh, uh, put in place uh, the infrastructure and then to, for them to source uh, volumes. And what was really interesting is really the speed at which this uh, happened, so literally within uh, a few weeks after the uh, outbreak uh, uh, of, of the war, all available uh, FSOUs uh, uh, in, the, in the global market essentially was scooped up and, and, uh, and uh, <coughs> um, uh, put onto contracts uh, in, uh, in, in Europe. So right in the beginning, it was all about making sure that we, we were able to match the speed and to try to make as much uh, capacity uh, available. Uh, a year uh, uh, on from, from that point, we now have three FSRUs operating in, in Germany. So uh, uh, they represent really critical strategic uh, infrastructure uh, in, 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 in Germany. So of course they are very prominent and uh, it's important that we manage to, to uh, operate them, uh, keep them uh, on hire, but of course there's also uh, and uh, you know new and 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 uh, heightened uh, sort of security risks that we we need to be conscious of, including uh, cyber. So if if there's anything that keeps me up at night, is is uh, it would be uh, sort of the whole risk picture uh, around uh, the operations in Europe. Thank you, Morten. Anders, please. <clears throat> I don't think I stayed awake at night, but I think, of course, with the general uncertainty, uh, I think we all we all started to wonder what's going to happen. It was mentioned already, the crew safety, of course, that's something we need to take very seriously. And, and again, before we sort of knew what the pattern was, it was, was difficult. Uh, within LPG, of course, also, you know, the question was, we've had, we had a very nice tumult trade, you know, historically, uh, with this shift so that more of the LPG go to Europe. Of course, that's uh, given the, uh, you know, uh, extreme situation. We, we, we really thought that uh, more LPG would actually hit Europe. But as it proved to be, our normal trade still stayed intact. Yes, there was some additional demand from, from, uh, from Europe, but, uh, but overall, um, uh, the trade stayed the way it was. I guess also, this became really an opportunity uh, within LPG. We saw, of course, that so much LNG was you know, going to Europe. And so, uh, in that sense, there were you know, 7 billion people out there still needing energy. And, and LPG has proven to be extremely versatile and a great energy source for, for uh, many places where you don't have the infrastructure, of course, to, 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 to receive the LNG. So, so again, uh, perhaps more opportunities than, than actually threats that we saw. Yeah, <clears throat> if I could just start with advanced gas, I think everybody been a bit surprised, even uh, Anders and myself, about how strong the market's been this year. Uh, everybody expected the market to be extremely soft because of 15% uh, order book to fleet ratio for delivery this year. So far, been a lot of slippage. Two out of the three main routes is uh, today being traded at above $100,000 per day on the spot freight. 
uh, and the, the only route below 100,000 is US to the, to Far East at about $85,000. Do you have a scrubber? You may be making 90. So, so it's it's been uh, it's been a very interesting year. We 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 did expect some slippage. Slippage has arrived, and then of course the Panama Canal is uh, really disrupting the trade. Uh, the volatility in waiting days is uh, going up, uh, and which means people have to schedule around the Panama and really avoid it and let. Uh, the LNG carriers and the container ships do the Panama Canal while VLGCs are basically being priced out of the canal. So that is supportive of the freight. Uh, in terms of flex LNG, which I'm also running, uh, it's a bit similar to what Morten here uh, to talked about. Of course, it's been a major shift of trade uh, from Asia to Europe. Of course, that has created uh, more demand for LPG in Asia. But, uh, and, and we see this continuing this, uh, this year as well. If you have spot ships uh, in the LNG uh, space today, uh, rates are actually terrible. <laughs> but there's not really any independent owners left because uh, cargo economics went to such a high level where uh, the big players chartered in, just like FSRUs, the big players here chartered in all the ships, more or less. So they are controlling both the, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the cargo market and the freight market in LNG right now. Uh, right now, it seems like the crisis in Europe is over. LNG prices is lowest since summer 2021, uh, and actually we are now at a level where, of course, in Europe it's coal to gas switching because of the high CO2 prices, but actually in Asia you can also buy spot LNG now to prices below coal, depending a bit on the quality of the coal. Uh, so uh, so I, I do think we will see more, more uh, demand drivers for LNG certainly with these kind of prices because there's been demand destruction on LNG side because of these prices, but I don't really thin, think it's permanently uh, destroyed. It's more subversion of demand, and that demand is coming back now with these very low prices. Thank you. Um, if I could just follow up, uh, Anders, with you. You were saying about LPG and not quite as expected. Um, do you think that it's the situation with Russia and Ukraine that has... Uh, is going to move things forward, or do you think it's more the environmental side of things that's been pushing things? No, I think I think clearly. I mean, um, Russia was not a big exporter of LPG, and so so it's been mostly for us, I think, indirect effects. Clearly, you know, with uh, when it uh, appeared how risky it was to just rely on you know a few sources of energy like Germany did and other places. I think it's it's quite clear that. Uh, uh, you know, you you have to you have to think about this over time as transition. And, and uh, LPG became, you know, with, with the U.S. U.S. production, the U.S. becoming more important, the production, you know, in the U.S. is really key for us. And so with the good exports from the U.S., uh, that's been the main driver of, of uh, and still underlying good demand in, in China, Japan, Korea. That's been the main driver of the LPG, you know, and how, why the market is so strong. Thank you. Um, if I could just ask um, maybe a, a joint question to Morton and, and, and um, Oystein. Um, in terms of when this happened, being a, a public company versus a private company, obviously I know you can't comment too much, but uh, in terms of being nimble, in terms of being private or being public, how, did that, how do you feel that affected your, uh, your situation? Um, Morton, maybe if you'd like to. Yeah, I mean, <coughs> I think that... Uh, having been a public company and recently gone private at the time that, uh, that this crisis broke out, which represented you know, a major opportunity, 
uh, in our market. I, I think it was definitely very positive to be uh, private, but I would have said the same thing also in the absence of, of, of a crisis like the one we uh, experienced uh, last year. Simply that um, FSRU business is a sort of very project-oriented business. These projects uh, are, uh, take a long time to develop, sometimes get delayed, perhaps more often get, uh, get delayed. Uh, and it's a, it's a business and a business model that doesn't sit very well in a public uh, entity. So for FSRUs, I think that uh, being private, and you know, we've gone private, uh, some of our competitors have, have also gone, uh, gone private, and it's a type of business that, uh, as I said, sits best, uh, best in, a, in a private uh, structure, in contrast with you. Yeah, I think for, for us it's been good in the sense that it's become more public awareness about uh, security of supply and, of course, the LNG space in general. So we've, of course, seen more investor interest for the company. We are not really securing 10-year deals with the German <laughs> Bundesrepublik like Morten is doing, so we are doing uh, time charters with uh, more like the super majors for you know, typically these days five to, to, to ten years. So, so it's really, you know, we transformed the company from a speculative shipping company because that was what our start was. We, we ordered 13 ships when the prices was 180 to 185 million dollars per ship. Today it's 260 and uh, the lead time is much longer as well. And then we fixed those ships out on long-term charters where we just monetized that, uh, that uh, opportunity uh, through long-term charters which are fixed price. Uh, and created a yield company out of, of the, the shipping company instead. And that is something people like today, even though you get 5% on a risk-free rate today, because 10-year rates are much lower. So nobody expects interest rates to stay at this level. And then if you can pay out uh, 10, 12% dividend yield every year, that is quite attractive, especially when you also do have some inflation protection in these assets, which we are owning. Okay, thank you. Um, Ivan, if I can come back to you, um, the, uh, the current situation, um, do you think that that is set to continue um, with new projects coming on stream? Do you think it would have been the same um, had the, the crisis not happened? Um, thank you. No, I think uh, <clears throat> it was definitely a wake-up call for many uh, governments, particularly in Europe. Um, and therefore it's kick-started all sorts of uh, thinking and, and procedures. So, for instance, in Germany, where it was almost verboten to talk about uh, expanding terminals and so forth, now they're fast-tracking to unlock the, 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 the bottlenecks to, to get energy in whatever shape into the country. So clearly it's a wake-up and it's, uh, it's accelerated lots of discussions. So for business, for shipping, that needs to import, or they need to import, we ship it for them, uh, this, this group of people, then that's a good thing. And, uh, you know, where does it come from is another question, which obviously U.S. is the big locomotive for LPG, for ammonia going to be, and for LNG. So the linkages between across the Atlantic will just be strengthened. And, uh, you know, that, uh, that will continue. Thank you. So I, I guess that needs us, leads us nicely in. So, John, I mean, what can the class societies do to help the owners here with this uh, changing, changing businesses? Um, do you have any particular insights as to how the ship owner and the class societies can work together better in light of what's happened in, in Ukraine? 
Yeah, well, one thing I'll just kind of uh, off of uh, the comment around the, the U.S. kind of flow is, uh, you know, over the past couple of years, we've had this shift of, of uh, uh, the gas going from Asia to U.S. to Europe. Uh, I think this past year, 70 percent of all LNG uh, coming from the U.S. Was, was headed to Europe. And that's uh, pretty significant as far as the change in the ton mile. Uh, and and uh, uh, you mentioned um, LPG as well, ethane's another. Uh, so we're seeing this shift, and we see, definitely see this continue. And this will, you know, uh, at this point, LNG uh, is on with the U.S. is on par with Australia, uh, Qatar, as far as that amount of output. And uh, you know, the, from a class standpoint, we're shifting to make sure that we're serving the clients as, as they move. Uh, we're, we're working on training. Uh, so we talk about uh, the, the growth in, in LNG and, and gas in general. And not only gas as a, as a uh, cargo, but gas as a fuel. And you talk about how we work with the clients and what, what those solutions are out there. It's, there's a, a significant gap in the, the capabilities, the competencies of, of crews, uh, uh, basically in the industry as a whole. As you start looking at uh, uh, the new technology, the digitalization of the industry, uh, and, and these alternate fuels that are coming into play, the safety concerns that we have to be aware of, the seafarers of today don't have that training uh, in the capacity that we need going forward. And that actually includes class societies as well, the training that's needed. So one thing that we're very focused on is supporting uh, training. We're doing a lot of um, uh, new using technology uh, around meta ships and uh, simulation and putting very very robust training programs around the gas market. Yeah. I mean, class societies traditionally have been a, a feeder for some of the shipping companies in terms of, of staff. Is that something you're having to go from the sort of the, the bottom up in training a lot more young people thinking to the future and that they have a mind to the new technology, or, or is it uh, we're all trying to fight over the same people? Yeah, that uh, as I travel around the globe, that, that is uh, a, a bit of a discussion point is uh, uh, fighting around the same people sometimes. Uh, but no, we, you know, we're, we're definitely, as I said, putting in a lot of robust training. And, and I think we mentioned earlier collaboration is, I think Knut mentioned it, is the fuel of, uh, of, of the way we go forward. And we're collaborating with governments, uh, with clients, with uh, other companies as far as putting out very robust training programs so that we can further educate and get the seafarers of tomorrow ready for the change in the industry as far as these new market segments that, that are growing. Uh, Thank you. Jason, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, yes, uh, the conflict uh, heightened the awareness of energy security, but I think, you know, shipping, we've done a lot of things, you know, started this transition long before the conflict started. At BWPG, we, we already made the decision to convert 15 of our older ships, you know, to go on dual fuel. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of technology has been invested in. At the same time, I think also, I think this crisis has shown us that we cannot go from A to B. We have to do this in a, in a, in a you know, in, in a way that we have control over. And I think for us to, you know, I, I think the shipping community, actually, we should be proud of how much we've accomplished. So to me, I'm, I'm I think the key now is to, is to make sure we, there are good incentives to invest in technology you know, and make sure that, uh, that uh, this transition happens in a good way. And gas clearly has become, you know, it was sort of a no-no in Europe, 
Now we've seen how important gas is, and it's going to play an important role for a long time. I mean, perhaps some, um, obviously, uh, Einstein knew had ships ready to go, Morton knew had FSIUs ready to go. Um, I guess that this wasn't something anyone could have necessarily foreseen. Um, but um, was it the environmental drivers that had you thinking towards the future that gas was going to be the future? Um, and, or is it, was it actually that you felt that um, it was a good time to invest because of low ship prices and low FSIU prices, and that was the driver behind moving to the future? Um, yeah, I think in the LNG, it's, it's, it's more the, the technological change in the terms of the machinery in the LNG ships has gone much slower than a lot of the other segments. So, uh, of course, certainly 2014 or so, you know, you could order ships with a, a slow-speed two-stroke engines because then the technology was de developed for having that. Until that, you had the four-stroke uh, medium-speed diesel electric and prior to that, the steam. So then you have new ships which are 60% more efficient. And you know, the IMO kind of requirements in the beginning was to have a 70% reduction in carbon intensity by 2050. And we could do that when we took delivery of ships in 2018. We already had ships 60% more efficient than the steam generation of ships. So of course that's a compelling story because it's not only about the environment, it's also about economics. So certainly you have a ship which is much more fuel efficient. You can have a bigger parcel and you consume less of the, basically the cargo, which is the LNG boil off. So, and, and when at the same time, prices was at rock bottom levels, it, it really made sense to, to go all in and, and all these ships. Uh, because we saw the growth from U.S. in terms of uh, liquefaction capacity, uh, and our <laughs> plan was to then uh, charter those ships out on long-term charters in 2020. Unfortunately, <laughs> we, we got a bit delayed because of the COVID. So I think the, that that's the reason, and that's why we have had a you know a, a good progress in terms of decarbonization because these older steamships they have to leave the the fleet in terms of the. Uh, advanced LPG, uh, you know, Anders has been retrofitting some of his ships. We ordered uh, six new ships, uh, dual fuel ships, uh, so they can burn LPG, uh, similar to LNG carrier, and you have a bigger parcel size, uh, and the fuel consumption is less. So certainly you are reducing your fuel consumption by 40% compared to our 2015 ships. So, so uh, of course, when you're trading in the spot market, that really means that when you are on a voyage charter and you are paying for your own fuel, you are much more cost competitive to, towards your, especially if people are trading the 2008-9 ships, having a lot more fuel consumption, big, smaller parcel size. When, when those people are you know, running at OPEX level, you are making a, 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 a decent profit. So it, it's more about in investing smart. Those ships cost 80 million when we order them. Today it would be 105, and you would have longer lead time. And it's seven thousand dollars of fuel savings at the moment. I mean, we, we on that we've seen a shift though, with um, gas-capable ships running on on fuel oil um, because of the cost change. So, do we take from that that the environmental concerns are are less than the economic concerns in terms of? It's a, it's about both. Of course, we are not Greenpeace. We are not trading our ships for the environment. We're trading them for economics. Mm -hmm. And of course, if we can do something good for the environment as well and get the good CIA ratings, you know, we, we do both. For us, it was just a matter of future-proofing our fleet. 
you know, we, we, we saw that this was a good way for us. Instead of investing in new ships, we could use our existing ships as a leading player in the LPG sector. Instead of going out and, you know, making Nordbook even bigger, uh, we, we decided to, to do it that way. Of course, the footprint also of retrofitting is quite much smaller than a new build. So, so it's both. And of course, the last item is, of course, the product we are carrying. What, what is it for? It's basically getting rid of coal. That's the ultimate solution here, getting rid of coal. And in order to do that, do that you need to have a, a, a hydrocarbon which is uh, much more uh, environmentally friendly. Uh, and also, we shouldn't forget about the, you know, the local air quality pollution. You know, CO2 emissions, LNG compared to coal, 50-60% reduction. But where you see the real big reductions is sulfur, NOx, and especially particulate matter, where it's basically 99% reduction. And, and this is why, of course, Europe started with gas uh, in, in the 60s, because they, you wanted to get rid of the local air uh, pollution, not really the CO2. Thank you. Um, Morten, if I could come back to you on, on uh, the... FSRUs, obviously, you, you were putting quite a few into Europe um, and you were prepared. Um, whether or not that was that uh, you had a crystal ball somewhere or whether or not you just happened to have the vessels ready. But uh, I mean, firstly, that obviously, but secondly, dealing with governments versus dealing with individual projects. Most of them are obviously government driven. Um, is, that a, is that more of a challenge than, than maybe dealing with private companies? And, uh, or, uh, or companies that are not governmental? A couple of comments. Uh, we certainly did not build up our FSRU fleet in anticipation of what played out uh, a year ago. Uh, it was really about <coughs> building uh, uh, units against projects, typically in, in developing economies, where there, there was an import uh, uh, requirement to import LNG to generate more uh, electricity. Uh, it's no secret that the FCU market was slow up until 2020 or through 2021. Uh, a number of projects didn't go ahead or, or collapse for various reasons. So we and others had available uh, ships that could be uh, picked up or ended up being picked up when the crisis started. Had it happened a year earlier, we would have had even more units available that we could have uh, offered uh, into uh, to Europe. Um, when it comes to your, uh, your uh, second question, um, I think our experience over the years, both recently in Europe but also elsewhere in the world uh, prior to this, is that uh, the best projects, the strongest projects, and the ones that are most likely to succeed when you start uh, developing them uh, at an early stage is where you have some sort of either direct or indirect uh, government support. You need to have a, a market, the demand needs to be there, but to have government uh, uh, backing uh, makes the projects more likely. Of course, there are a number of entirely private projects, but, uh, but uh, dealing uh, with either public utilities, uh, national oil companies, uh, is, is uh, typically uh, a strength. And uh, in the crisis uh, last year, I think one of the most remarkable things is actually how quickly governments and uh, uh, the commercial um, uh, uh, companies that acted as agents for the government. So for instance, in, in Germany, uh, the government essentially instructed Uniper and RWE to, to essentially put the projects together. And the speed at which this happened and the speed at which big and very costly decisions were made by the politicians, I think surprised uh, everyone. 
So just a sort of anecdote, uh, uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz gave this uh, landmark speech in, in the Bundestag three days after the war started, where he talked about military spending and, and all sorts of things that, that essentially there was a change of an era, new era in, in, in Germany. In that speech, he said that uh, uh, Germany would, uh, would uh, commission two LNG import terminals uh, which, of course, we found very interesting right away, and we reached out to, to our contacts in Germany the, the, the next day and uh, uh, asked the question, so, okay, two, two, two LNG terminals on a fast-track basis, what does that mean? The answer back was uh, first gas in somewhere between two and four years. And within 10 months, they had three FSRUs uh, up, up, up and running. So really, it was remarkable how quickly uh, things happened. Is, is there a danger, though, that if um, you're dealing with governmental bodies that, yes, they can be very quick and they can cut through the red tape um, if there's a regime change of some kind? Is there any risk or is it all contracted in and uh, you feel comfortable with that? I, I think in Europe that risk is, is relatively uh, low. Of course, the, this, um, if you think about, okay, what, what, what's going to happen next? Uh, so there was this... Uh, first wave uh, to deal with the immediate uh, crisis uh, a, a year ago. Uh, I don't think that Europe uh, as a whole is, is done in terms of, of uh, um, taking on additional uh, import capacity. There could be some land-based facilities, but there, there in all like will be a couple of more FSIU projects, uh, uh, both in Germany but also in, in, in some of the other key, uh, key markets. But of course, at some point, uh, the sort of the, the sense of urgency, sense of emergency will, will, will pass and the market will uh, sort of normalize back to a sort of co fully commercial uh, market or driven by ordinary commercial uh, drivers. It won't be the same market as it was before uh, the war uh, and it will take some time. But of course, if you, if you take a 5, 10, 15 year perspective, of course, mm -hmm. Uh, Europe, uh, there will be a lot of floating um, uh, import capacity in, in Europe, but it will be, become more commercial uh, with time. Thank you. Um, I mean, as we're on the, the government uh, governmental side of things and the effects of that, if we can move just quickly to, to price capping and, and uh, the effect of, of embargoes, um, or even if I could come to you, um, is it feasible to... Um, to embargo or price cap oil, does it have the intended effect? Does that feed through to the LPG markets in terms of is processed oil actually embargoed or should it be? Or um, maybe you have an opinion. Yeah, I mean, if uh, <clears throat> I'm not an oil expert, but I'll, I'll answer that last. In terms of LPG, uh, so there's an LPG export trade from the Baltic, mm -hmm. so from Russia, uh, that used to go to mainland continental Europe. It's not sanctioned. Uh, however, the importers, the buyers, the consumers are self-sanctioning. So the LPG is being sold at a discount, but Turkey will buy, India will buy, Africa will buy. So the impact is that the ships have to go longer, but there's no reduction in exports. Um, listening to some other folks uh, during the morning um, on the oil side, there's a huge great trade and a lot of people are making a lot of money, and it's not stopped. Uh, so, in you know, to do, to answer your question, no, it doesn't work. It 
well, it worked for somebody, it depends on the eye of the beholder, but the shipping industry, the people who can do it and do do it, and there's a lot of it, they're making a killing. I think uh, yeah, that seems to be self-evident now. Um, John, then, if I can come to you, obviously, as a, a U.S. representative, um, obviously, the geopolitical impact of, of what's happened um, has certainly impacted on U.S. LNG. Um, as we're talking about what the government would like, um, from a, a U.S. perspective, would you like to comment at all on the, uh, the impact of, of what's happened in, uh, in the U.S. for LNG and whether the sanctions have affected anything? Uh, well, most certainly, and I think I, I spoke a bit about it uh, previous, but uh, you know we're, we're seeing this uh, significant growth of export of gas, uh, LNG, uh, specifically as we're talking about that, with uh, um, exports shifting uh, from Asia to Europe uh, over the past year. Uh, as I mentioned, about 70% in 2022 of the LNG exports landed in Europe. Uh, 23 probably will be the same or, or greater. Uh, and now with uh, Freeport coming back online, uh, just to give you kind of a, a feel of how many vessels we're talking about, uh, in, in um, April uh, there was 85 uh, LNG loadouts, LNG carrier loadouts, and once Freeport came back online, uh, there's 95, 96 uh, loadouts. So the, we're seeing that continue to grow, uh, and we have three kind of major uh, uh, projects in play that are coming online. Uh, the Plaquemines LNG terminal. Uh, we've got uh, the uh, um, additional uh, Corpus Christi growth coming online. So you're starting to see continued growth, gas coming out of, of the U.S., and Europe is really where it's going to at this point. So if, um, if this all were to end, well, unfortunately not tomorrow, but if it were to all end quite quickly um, or at some point in the future, can you see um, that reversing to some extent? Can you see the demand for U.S. gas reducing, or will you, do you think that at the, in, the, in the future going forwards it's... Uh, it's going to continue with U.S. gas being no. the most attractive because of, of either maybe uh, political realities or commercial realities. No, I, I don't see that uh, slowing down at all. I mean, uh, you know, you've got the, the demand in, in uh, Asia, and that can always uh, be a market for U.S., as, uh, of course, and as we bring on more facilities, uh, more trains. But uh, the Europe... The Europe piece will continue to grow, I believe, and and that uh, that shifted, as I said, the ton mile kind of calculation, and uh, that that is an area of demand. So the, I don't see that slowing, okay, and there's you. so much investment going into the U.S. Mm -hmm. at this point, uh, and so many LNG carriers on order today that are coming out. Uh, yeah. The 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 demand is there. Thank you. I can see two microphones, post three now, actually. I, I just a short comment. Just in terms of sanctions, there's no sanction on Russian LNG. Actually, European buyers are buying Russian LNG with both hands, and they have yeah. never bought more. So, uh, so in terms of sanctions, there's nothing on, on the horizon for LNG. Some countries are mulling about maybe we should sanction Russian LNG, yeah, but there's EU, not the appetite yeah. for it. Yeah. Okay. Morning, please. I would just say that, uh, that uh, you know, the... The, the war will end one day, uh, and perhaps there will there will uh, be pipeline exports from Russia uh, back to to Europe, but it will never be at the same 
volumes and with the same reliance. So I think that one thing that we have been talking about for a long time when we have been marketing uh, FSRUs is, is energy security. Security of supply and the flexibility that, that FSRUs uh, offer. We didn't get all that much attention uh, uh, historically for that argument. People pursued FSRU projects uh, uh, you know, for other reasons. And of course, that uh, uh, really has caught uh, the attention of, of importers, not only in Europe, but, but, but indeed across uh, uh, the globe. So even yeah. if, even if uh, Russian pipeline gas is cheaper, you think that ethics will win out over economics? Uh, it, I don't think it's ethics. I think it, people are thinking about uh, redundancy, about uh, insurance, and I think the sort of the fundamental uh, uh, well, the, the, the sort of this notion, particularly in Germany, that that uh, relations would improve as a result of, of, of trade, it's it's, mm -hmm. it's it's failed spectacularly, and they will not make that mistake uh, again. So, perhaps uh, you know, Germany could end up uh, importing, let's say, 10% of their total requirements uh, in a post-war uh, scenario, but but nowhere close to. 50%, which was the mm -hmm. case before. Yeah, it would actually yeah, go yeah. to 70% if Nord Stream 2 was up and running, mm. So, which was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's going to be, you know, business as usual, I think. It's going to be, the U.S. is still going to be an important, a very important producer. And we've also, the, you know, this, uh, this conflict has really just established even, free, you know, more markets for LPG. We're seeing, you know, we've, we've sold 25 ships last three years. And these ships are all going into, you know, captive trades, whether it's to storage or just these, you know, these uh, local trades. And so LPG has actually become, you know, given again that uh, Europe has taken so much of the LNG, uh, you know, the rest of the world has really, I think, uh, got their eyes open for, for LPG. So, so we see that trade continuing very well. Okay, thank you. Well, we just have a couple of minutes left. So I'd like to give the panel a, an opportunity because I think it is an opportunity that at the moment we have MSC going on in London. We have... Uh, Amy PC coming up. Um, given what's happened in Ukraine, is there anything particularly that jumps out to any of you that you would like to, as a message to the regulators, that there's something that they should be, be thinking going forward? So anybody who would like to, Morton, please. Well, I, I also wear another hat. I'm, I'm chairman of the Guard P&I Club. And I think the, when you talk about oil tankers and the, and the shadow fleets and the gray fleets, there's a big concern. Uh, not only that, that the caps may not be working and a lot of oil is, is still being exported, but uh, for the world as a whole and for the shipping industry as a whole, the fact that, that uh, the, the, the number of ships that are now trading without proper insurance is a, is a major concern uh, and should be a major concern for all of us. Because if there is a grounding with an oil spill anywhere in the world or is the, there is a collision between one of these ships without proper insurance and one of our our ships, then, then, then uh, we have uh, the potential for a major uh, catastrophe. And it's something that's not fully understood, uh, uh, both in the, industry, in the industry, but more importantly, among regulators and, and governments. This can only be solved at the, at the level of, of national governments. And I think that this week and, uh, is, a, is a good opportunity to, to try to raise uh, awareness uh, around this, this big issue. Thank you. Okay, so thank you very much, gentlemen. Um, it's been an enthralling session, certainly for me. I hope for everyone in the audience as well. Um, and uh, well, thank you very much. And I'll hand back to 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 Nick for for the, for the rest of the uh, of the day. Thank you.